have a seat. Let's, let's pray. God, we are thankful. Um, it's fun just to hear people talking and kids moving and then to come to you and say, open up our hearts, our eyes, our ears so that we can hear what you would say to us. That is our prayer today. We just pray that you would speak, um, that you would engage with us on a level that transforms our lives, makes us more like Jesus. We commit this time to you. In his name we pray. Amen. I, I like that uh, little talking before the sermon because it gets all the adults' wiggles out before I start talking. Um, we are in the last Sunday of our season of the Gospels where we work, we're working through the book of Matthew. We're going to move into Lent next week, the inserts in the bulletin to explain what that is. Uh, and, and our commitment this month is a commitment to worship. We're focusing in on what it means to worship. And one of the ways you do that is by participating in these, the way we structure our service here in these different things. And we'll talk more about that as the, as the month goes on. But we are in Matthew chapter 22 today. Uh, we're covering a very short, very familiar passage. Uh, and it's found uh, in different ways in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And it's the same basic story, but in all three places, it's told different ways. Twice, it's Jesus giving an answer to a question. Once, it's, it's a person answering a question that Jesus asked. Now, people get their heads in there, oh, well, which one was it? Well, it could have been all three. It, it, it's not that this is the only time Jesus ever talked about this, and it's not that the only time there was discussion around these matters. But in our story today, it's the Pharisees who are testing Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him caught in his words and kind of mess up and, and doing something to discredit him. So I'm just going to read Matthew 22, 34 to 40, and then we're going to look at this passage for a little while. Matthew 22, 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's a really short, simple text, but we need to understand kind of where it came from, at least in the way Matthew lays out his story. It all starts with a story and its repercussions. We, we often take the text today, these, the greatest commandment and the second is like it, love God, love your neighbor, and we divorce it from what's happening around it. And, and there's a context building to this time when Jesus tells these two commandments that it's important we realize. He starts in verse 2 and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, remember we Jesus is doing this, he's given these metaphors to help us understand what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And, and, and so this king prepares this huge wedding feast for his son and he invites people and the people he invites refuse to come. So he sends his servants again. He says, go back to those people that are refusing to come and tell them the banquet's ready, it's time to come. And this time they just go off and, and almost ignore them. Some of, 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 of the people actually beat the servants that are sent. And, and, the, and the king responds in this powerful way. But one thing I want you to see is this story lays a foundation 
for the interactions that happen that leads to the first and the second commandment. Because what the story is about, the anchoring story, is, is a story about a God who welcomes people. It's the kingdom of heaven, and, and God is throwing this big, huge wedding feast for his son and the bride, which is Jesus and the church. We understand that by looking back on it, right? God wants people to come into the feast. He wants to welcome them to the kingdom. That's his nature, one of welcome. We often think God is all about exclusion, but the very incarnation, the very fact that God would come here shows that God is a God who wants to welcome people to himself. He, he has this banquet, and even those he invited refuse to come. He resends the invitation. It says in verse, um, resends the invite again, and eventually he just opens the door to everyone. If you look back before what we read in verse 9 and 10, he tells his servants, so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. See, this is the fundamental visual underlying these two commandments. The king, God, is throwing a party and he wants people to come. But just as God is one who welcomes, there are also people who resist. In verse 3, it says they refuse to come. His original people he's invited. In verse 5, they pay no attention. They go off and do their own things. In verse 6, it says they, they see the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And then in verse 7, it talks about severe consequences that the king pours out on these people who've refused the invitation. We know in hindsight, this story was about God seeking to welcome people to him and the Jewish, especially the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, the Sanhedrin, they all rejected his invitation to the kingdom. And they mistreated his servants and they killed him. And it's a pointed story where Jesus is saying to these leaders, you've been invited, you're refusing to come, and if you keep refusing to come, I'm just going to bring everybody and you're going to pay the price for your refusal. That's the context. And that's why we see what we see in verse 15, verse 23, and verse 34. In 15, it says the Pharisees went out after the story. They went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. Pharisees are mad because he's, he's hitting right where they are. And then in verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. And then in verse 34, the start of our text, hearing that the Sadducees had, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them tested him with a question. You see, Jesus has told this story. God invites people to the wedding feast. The, the, the leaders realize he's talking about them refusing to come to where he is. And so they begin to do what we often do. They start using knowledge as a means of control. Or in other words, there could be information as a means of control. In verse 15 to 22, they set, the Pharisees set plans to trap him in his words, and they bring up political issues. Okay, Jesus, here's, should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we not? Right? Let's, let's engage the, the Republican-Democrat, liberal-conservative divide. And, and they think they're going to trap Jesus because if he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, because the Jews are exploited, they hate paying taxes. Not like us. We love paying taxes here, right? The Jews hate paying taxes to Rome. So if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, the Jews will love him, but the Romans will hate him and he'll get in trouble. And if he says, of course, pay taxes to Rome, the Jews will hate him, but the Romans will be happy. They're setting him up. And so Jesus says, hey, whose picture is this? Whose image is on this coin? Well, Caesar's is on there. Well, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to him. 
give to God. And what he's actually saying is give to God the things that bear God's image. Do you get that? He's saying you are created in the image of God. This money is created in the image of Caesar. Feel free to give Caesar his money, but you make sure that you give to God what's been created in his image. It's a big question. And, and it says in verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching. He, 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 he got past them. So the Sadducees show up. Now the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they think there's this theological question. If, if in Jewish culture, there's a, there's a practice in the law called Leverite marriage, where if a, a, a a woman's husband died and she didn't have an heir, that the Jewish law said that her brother should, or his brother, the husband's brother, if there was a brother, should marry the wife to have a son to maintain the deceased brother's name and also to support the widow. And so that was a practice that went on. It was a cultural practice. It was spelled out in the law. And the Sadducees say, well, what if this guy has seven brothers and she weeds them off one by one by one by one by one? Right? You think Brother Seven thinks, I'm not going to marry that girl, right? Every brother I've had died. But their question is, in the resurrection, which they don't even believe in, whose husband will she, who, whose wife will she be when they're all in the resurrection? And Jesus goes on to deal with that. You can read about how he dealt with that. But, but you see what they're trying to do. He's pointed a question at them, and they're trying to use information to, tw- to trap him. They're trying to control the situation by having the right theology, or knowing the right thing, or discrediting him. Same thing comes here. What is the greatest commandment of the law? That's, that was in our text today. We, we always try to do this. When, when Jesus gets too close, and when he points at us, and st- we struggle with him, we want to move it to theological debates. Or we want to talk about what do you think about this? Or what do you think, what kind of car would Jesus drive? We, we start doing all these knowledge and information things to keep Jesus a bit at a distance. People outside the church. This is my favorite one. The church is full of hypocrites. So I'm not going there. And I'm like, yes, we are. You have a very, we are all hypocrites. But see, that's a, that's a way of using an issue, information, a topic, a discussion to keep you from engaging with what Jesus is really doing. And Jesus takes their quest for information. He takes their attempts at control. And he pushes it back from knowledge and information to relationship. He he, he turns the whole focus of what they're trying to do on its head. And he starts with what he says is the most important commandment, one that they should already know, the call to love God. It's something that had been embedded in the Jewish faith for centuries. A faithful Jew would say the Shema, the prayer, every morning and every evening from Deuteronomy 6.5. They would have prayed it twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. They would have prayed that in the morning. They would have prayed that in the evening. So this is something that they already knew. And, and we all know, I don't think anybody here doesn't know that we should love God. But the simplicity of that command... And what happens when we do it is actually quite profound. You see, the reason love for God underlies everything else, the reason it's the greatest commandment, is that our loves direct our lives. What we love directs our lives. It will shape our days. Not what we know, but what we love. In Proverbs 4, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do 
flows from it. It doesn't say, above all else, guard your mind. Now, you should guard your mind. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying just let your mind go, do whatever. But when, when it says everything that flows, flows out of your heart, out of what you love. I, I told you probably before the story about my dad who smoked for 30 years. And I, I remember the last probably 10 years of that, I was young. But I remember how much he hated it. And he tried to stop, and he, would, he, he, he drove, he was a mail carrier, and he, he drove the mail on an 80-mile route every day, and he would tell stories to my mom about how he got so disgusted at his smoking habit, and he'd roll down his window. That's how we used to do it in the old days. You remember that kind of... He'd roll down his window, and he'd take his, his, the, the things he smoked, the cigarettes, and he'd throw them out the window. And he said on his way home from work, he'd be back, pulled off on the side of the road, parting the grass. Look at, I just couldn't stop, and it, it, it killed him. He hated it, and he knew... He knew he was waking up in the middle of the night coughing, 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 coughing. He knew it was going to kill him, and he could not stop until one day my sister, the oldest of the four kids who was pregnant, said he broke into a coughing fit, and she said, Dad, I sure hope you live long enough to meet your grandchildren. And that one sentence twigged him, and he still says, well, it wasn't just that. It was me calling out to God. But, but what motivated him was not knowing it was going to kill him, but love motivated him to change you see our our loves and he stopped he did stop right then he stopped right our loves drive our lives they, that, that that's what that's the engine that everything comes from and i've got you're wondering what this is aren't you i've got some things i brought my loves here i'm going to show you three of my loves today here's the first one okay you ready Let's see if i can do this without killing anybody or anything all right that's my family, for those of you that can't see that. My wife and my four daughters. That picture usually hangs above our fireplace in our house. And I love those guys. And you know what? We, we got together with our, our four daughters Friday night and Saturday morning. We had a meal. Uh, we went down to, the, to Langley to, to meet them. They came out on the bus, two of them. And we brought two. And never once did I think, what a pain to have to drive to Langley. I've got so many more things I could do. Why am I wasting all this time? We spent money. There's money spent for supper. I wish we hadn't spent... That was not even a concern. I was so happy to be with them because I love them. Angela and I are going away in a couple weeks for a, a couple weeks vacation. It's not drudgery to talk about that right now. <laughs> we look at each other three or four times a day and say, you ready to go? How many days? We're excited because we love each other. We want, it's driving our lives. Our loves drive our lives. It's not an obligation for me to plan a vacation with my wife. I can't wait to go. All right? Here's another one. I'll just uncover half of this books. I know this is weird, but I love these things. I, I, and, and, and it's a sickness. <laughs> it really is. Angela says, yes. Angela looks at beside my little armchair and she's like, will you take some of those books back to your office? Because they just pile up. And, and I, it's not even logical. Like I, I'm going through the library list and I'm requesting books and I've got 10 more I've got to read, but I, I still, and I'm like, oh, it's because I don't have to think. You should read, Jeff. You should get a book out of the library. I don't have to even think about that. It's because I love... That's weird, I know. But it's just something I love, right? Anybody know what's under here? Oh, you saw that one coming, didn't you? Yes! And tell me, that's weird. A little orange ball goes through a, a, an orange hoop. And I love it. It's so weird to me that I do, but I do. I just, it's so much fun. We were watching a basketball game at our house, and my sister-in-law said, how tall is that guy? And I said, oh, he's 6'5". And she said, how did you know that? 
I don't know, I, I read it somewhere, and it hit me. You know, I never had to think, memorize the heights of the players on that team. But because I love everything about this little ball, I remember, I, remember, I don't have to work at it. My, lo- my love for these three things drives my life. And that's why loving God is so important. Now, <laughs> we make decisions based on what we love. That can be good or bad. Right? I've shown you three things that I love <laughs> because I love me. And I want you to like me. So I showed you three things that you think, you'll think that's kind of funny and whatever, you know. The reality is, I also love myself so much that sometimes that can be distorted. And I can be lazy. I can be selfish. I can, I, I can love food so much that I actually damage my body. It's, it's a disordered love. It's something that's not good. Or, or love of stuff over people can twist my priorities. If I love just sitting in a chair, resting, taking it easy, and somebody needs something in my family, even the people I love, I can be really irritable and grumpy because my loves, good or bad, drive my actions. And that's because that's true, we can also say that our lives reveal our loves. How we spend our time shows what we actually do love. Not what we say that we love, but what we do love. Mary Oliver, the poet who just passed away recently, says, the patterns of our lives reveal us. Our habits measure us. Just hear that again. The patterns of our lives reveal us. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 12. Make a, good, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. When, yes, what you love will drive your life, but the same is true that what you live out will also reveal what you actually love. If you slow down long enough to replay the last 24 hours in your head, you will begin to see what it is that you love. Just think for a minute. Take, take a minute now and just quietly think over the last 24 hours. And I want you to think of the emotions or things that happened in the last 24 hours. Odds are that, that the positive and the negative emotions of that last 24 hours give you insight into what you actually love. Like I said, I love my family. But in any given moment, if I love my own ease and my comfort more than my family, I will choose me over them and be irritated by their requests from me. So then comes the question, if loving God shapes how I live, then how can I grow in my love for God? How can I make sure that I actually am loving Him? Well, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Being loved leads to loving. There's a quote in 1 John. John Corbett's teaching 1 John in adult Sunday school this month. I would really encourage you to come out because it's such a powerful book and John's a great teacher. But it says in 1 John 4, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, in this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. You see, 
and this is, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I'm going to skip over it because I want to end on this again. But we, the question was, how do we love God? We love God when we realize we are loved by God. That's where it has to start. We love because we are loved. And like I say, I'll get back to that. But before we do that, let's go to the second commandment. Isn't it funny? Jesus, they say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives them two. They only ask for one, but Jesus gives them two. He moves on to the call to love your neighbor. Why two? And why does he say the second is like it, right? What exactly does that mean? It seems like a different command. Love God up there, love your neighbor down here. Why are they alike? Now, loving your neighbor, it's not, some people have said, oh, Jesus took the the first one from the Old Testament and then he added the second one on. No, it's in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. It's a command in the Old Testament. But, But they're different commands, or are they? How is it that they're like? How is the second one like the first one? Well, it's like because it expresses it. When you love God and it shapes your life, you love others. When I, here's an example. When I talk about this stupid little game basketball, I, I, I occasionally use a sermon illustration about basketball once or twice a year. Right? <laughs> and when I do it, I watch you. And some of you guys out there, some of you diehard hockey fans, <laughs> you smile. Some of you people that hate, some of you that have never seen a basketball game in your life, you kind of nod and you... You know what? You know why you like that? Because you love me. And I appreciate that. It's, it's out of kindness. You love my story about basketball because, to some degree, you love me. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just being thankful, right? <laughs> it's not that I'm your favorite. I'm not saying that. But you make space for basketball in your life because you've made space for me, right? And, and when you love someone, you love what they love. Let me ask you this. How many of your grandparents in here? Raise your hand if you're a grandparent. Yes, okay. How many of you love watching animated movies? <laughs> a few of you do. Okay, a few of you. But I, even those of you that hate animated movies, if your grandchildren are over, you'll sit and watch an, an animated movie with them. How many of you love the newest toys and the gadgets? How many of your grandparents just cannot wait for your own benefit to go to Toys R Us or whatever the toy store is to see what's new on the shelf? That's not you, but because your grandchildren love them, you love them, right? When you love someone, you love what they love. The reason loving neighbor is like loving God is that if we love God, we love what God loves. Remember, there's a little biblical clue. At every professional football game, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Okay? Now here's the kicker. And this is why the second one is so revealing. The way we love others helps us to see if we actually love God or if we only think we love God. Our love toward the people in the world around us reveals our true love. John writes the same thing in 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And this is where it gets a little quiet. (laughs) In here, because we love to talk about loving God and God loving us, but man, that neighbor 
that person that's upset me, that person that said horrible things about me, that person that just grates me like a cheese grater every time I'm with them, loving them is a whole different story. And that's why we like knowledge. That's why we like information. It's so impersonal. We can figure out information about people. We can decide if we like them or not based on their theology or how nice they are or whatever. But to love them takes it totally out of the realm of information and puts it in the realm of relationship. We like to categorize and to rank and to label. And you know what God likes to do? God likes to love the world. Just take a moment and let that sink in. Our love for other people reflects our love for God. It reveals our love for God. And these two commandments, Jesus says, are the hooks everything else hangs on. The hooks everything else hangs on. That's the most astounding statement in the whole text to me. He makes these two commands. Have you read the Old Testament? There's a few laws in there. Have you, it, it takes a long time to read that. And there's a lot of different things. And the, you know, the Pharisees had added 613 more things that they would work out. And all kinds of, there's all kinds of laws. And Jesus says, you take these two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. Everything else is in there. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Really? Is, it comes down, is it that simple? Really, Jesus, loving God, loving neighbor, is it really that simple? Yes, it's that simple. Easy? No. Loving your neighbor is not an easy thing. But is it simple? Yes. And reflecting on this passage, we have to ask ourselves the big question, does my life show love for God? Notice I didn't say, do I love God? I'm not asking you that. Because I think if I asked anybody that, you to some degree would say, yes. Oh, it's not perfect, but I do love... I'm, I'm asking you this. Does your life show love for God? Because we, we can fool ourselves. <laughs> it says in Proverbs 25, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight will draw them out. Often we have an amazing ability to deceive ourselves. Did you, have you ever noticed that about yourself? Let me show you an actual picture of me at the gym looking in a mirror. <laughs> Notice the lion and the little cat there beside it. <laughs> as much as you say, oh, I'd never do that. We have an ability to deceive ourselves. Oh, yes, I love God. That big jerk cut me off in traffic. That, big, that person hurt my... We can deceive ourselves. So the question is, does my life show love for God. How do we spend our time? What are we drawn to? What are our relationships with people at work like? What are our relationships with our neighbors like? What types of things do we say about other people? Does my life show love for God? I don't know. I, I fall short there. I'm sure we all do. So, so the question is not, I don't just want to dwell on that. You big losers, your life does not show love for God. End of sermon, God bless you, amen. We go. We're not going to stop there. The question is, what do I do about that? If my life doesn't show love for God in these areas, what do I do about it? So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up today with one sentence in three separate phrases. I want you to think about that. It's going to explain how these two commandments play out in our lives. We have to start by receiving the full love of God. I am becoming more and more convinced that what helps people grow and transform is not their knowledge of theology or how much they understand God 
or even having their questions answered. You know, people think, if I could just get this spiritual question answered, I would be better further along my relationship with God. I'm finding that that's, those things are important, but they're not what actually help people change. What helps people change is being loved by God exactly where they are. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was going over this this morning and I thought, this is the only sermon I ever preach. I have one sermon. And they're going to realize one day that I'm a sham. I only have one sermon. I just repackage it every week. And I was feeling really heavy about it. Oh, it's the same thing. Every week I say, God loves you and you're just going to transform everything if you can just get that into your head. But then I realized I'm preaching that sermon about what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. So maybe... Jesus had two sermons, love God and love neighbor. And maybe we're all right, but this, this, I, I was so silly. This is my last little visual thing today. I use rope tricks when I talk with kids and when I talk at camps and things like that. And, and I've had this rope trick for years up my sleeve. And I say, this rope is like my life. It's, it's, it's got a beginning, it's got an ending, right? And it's a gift from God. God gave it to me, he put it in my hands. And, and I took my life and I looked at it and thought, what am I gonna do with it? And so I started doing some things and and I worked it, and look, I made this beautiful bow. Then I do good with my life. It's very attractive. But then things happen. They start uh, happening to me, and, and then stress comes, and it starts pulling at me from either end. And this beautiful life, all of a sudden, is flawed. It has a knot in it. I've done something wrong. I've sinned. I'm ashamed of this. And so I do what we all do. When somebody says, come, let me see your life, I say, here it is. <laughs> see how pretty it is? I hide that thing. The one thing that, that I'm ashamed of, I say, look at my life, it's so pretty, look, isn't it great? And I'm hiding it, right? And what I mean by starting by being fully loved by God is we have to take this life with this knot and we have to hold it up and say, here it is. This is it. I'm really ashamed of what I've done with my life. And God takes it and he puts it in his hand. We give our life to him as it is with the knot and everything. And he just starts pulling and shaking. And, and sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's not a lot of fun. And it starts sliding. And we're like, oh, it's not there anymore, but it's still here. And it just goes and goes and goes. And all of a sudden, it's gone. And I'm like, oh, God, you took away my, you took away my knot, right? Yeah, it's in here now, right? And I say, God, why don't you just throw that away? And he says, it's completely gone. There's nothing there. And I think that... It's a stupid, stupid trick. I know that. <laughs> but I want to say to you today, what's your not? What is it that you've seen? You've done it to your life. You know you did it. You know you made the mistake. And you're ashamed of it. And you're hiding it from everybody. And God says, give it to me. Put it back in my hands and let me deal with that. Let the love of God fully embrace your knots. That's the first step. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once you can let God's love penetrate your knot, that thing that you're so ashamed of that you hide from everybody else, you can let God love you at that spot. As we, let, let, as we fully receive the love of God, it leads to love for everyone. Because you know what? All of our judgments for other people start to melt away. Our anger and our hurt, when we realize how we've been loved, all of a sudden we can let go of their knots a little sooner too. That's why it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love, why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. And when you struggle with loving others, I really believe you don't really grasp the depth of the love that God has for you. 
You don't just need to work hard at loving others. You need to let God love you at your naughty places, at your broken places. Now, this is not a blank check. I'm not saying just let anybody do whatever. And I mean, there's all sorts of horrible situations where people have hurt you and you need to be removed from that situation. I'm not saying that you just go on as if it never happened. I'm not saying that. But letting God's love come to you enables you to let go of the vengeance for that. You may never trust them in your life again, but it, you don't have to punish them anymore for what they've done. You can let God deal with that as you let God love you deeply. When we see what God has done with our own knots, we're so thankful that we give others grace with theirs. If we receive the love of God fully at our deepest point of need, then we grow in love for the world. And this is the point. It, you can't stop that from happening. I don't think you can stop it. When the love of God penetrates you, I don't think you can hold it back. It's the kind of thing that flows out of you. And that's why the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, because receiving the love of God fully leads to loving others, which fulfills the law. When we start by letting the love of God impact us, then we love Him back. And as we love Him, we love what He loves. So we start to love others in spite of all their mistakes. And when you love God and love others, you don't want to hurt them. You don't want to lie to them. You don't want to take advantage of them. You, you don't want to hoard your stuff if they need stuff. You let stuff go because you love people. I think this is the most counterintuitive, simple truth of the gospel. When we love, when we realize that God loves us, really loves us as we are, it makes us different people. And then... I'm going to say this very carefully because I'm not saying we don't keep the law, but I'm saying the law becomes something that gets fulfilled in us. We don't have to work at keeping the law because as being loved by God and loving him, we love who he loves. And so that makes me want to act differently with the people that he loves. Just like I don't have to work at spending time with my family or reading books or thinking about basketball. I don't, I don't ever give it, never in my daytime or does it say, make sure you spend time with your family today. Read a book today. Think about basketball today. There is not one day that I do not think about basketball. I'm sorry that that's, it's weird. But it, it's because I love those things. And when we receive the love of God and we love other people, that we, we fulfill the law. It just happens in our lives. Paul writes about it in Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I want you to get the ripple effect here, and it's fitting that we come to this table, because right here, this table says, God loves you at your naughtiest. Naughtiest, naughtiest. Either way, you can play the, on those words, right? He loves you at your worst point. That's what the table says. But this is what happens. This is how it plays out. All of a sudden, I bring my brokenness to God, and He loves me in spite of my brokenness. And that makes me love Him so much that I want to love who He loves. And as I love who he loves, guess what happens to them? They have their brokenness, and you love them, and they think, wow, they love me, and they begin to taste that maybe God loves them. And so they respond to God's love by loving him back, and then they start to love what he loves, and it goes to the next person, and the next person, 
and the next person. That's the way the love of God works and fulfills the law. It transforms people in ways that working hard at keeping the law and keeping the rules and doing the right thing will never, ever do. If you, if you let God love you fully, you will love other people and that will fulfill the law in your life and you'll look back and you'll think, how did that happen? And you'll realize it's just because I love him because he loved me first. Let's pray. God, please help us to open our hands and lift our knots up to you, the broken things in our life, the things that we would so do differently if we ever had a chance to do them again. The things that we're so ashamed of, the, the mistakes we've made, even the things that have been done to us that we feel guilty about, God, help us just to open our hands and lift that up to you at this table today, realizing that you love us there. And I pray that your love would inspire the same in us to you and to the world around us. Walk us through this table. Invite us and transform us and the world around us through the love, this simple truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Wednesday, we go into Lent, which is a time of reflection and repentance, acknowledging the knots in our life and being honest about them. And it's really important to me that as we head into this, that you hear the only reason it's safe to even go there is because God loves us despite all that. We can hold up to him everything we find in our own lives through this Lenten process, and he loves us. So I want you to hear it loud and clear. God demonstrates his love for you and me in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And then in the words of Jesus, freely you have received, freely give. Amen.